folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and on my journey over the last 11 plus years, I didn't know this when I first started, but uh, the supreme being and the supreme healing factor uh, in my show, outside of doing, uh, you know, long-form interviews verbally, is rhythm. Rhythm is absolutely essential to healing. Uh, It resets my nervous system. Uh, mainly because I allow the body to dance uh, in all musical settings. But at the end of the day, it, it unshrouds your dharma, it cleans out all the, the dark corners of your heart. And, uh, and I find today in our society, uh, so much music is presented in a formula trip. You buy a ticket, you're ushered to your seat, you applaud even if you don't even like the music. And... Uh, to me, it's just I am only really interested if I'm allowed to have spiritual descarga and burn and be able to break open the skull and uh, and release all that sort of angst and uh, all these cognitive dissidents and issues that pervade our society. And I get a chance today to speak to somebody who has been all over that for some time, and I I get the feeling that in many ways rhythm has uh, kept him healthy, kept him alive, and uh, most importantly, uh, kept him inspired so that he can uh, knock out the vibrational rhythm to others uh, so that hopefully they can be themselves and try to fit into what is left of our civilization. Chuck Wood, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Oh, thank you, Jake. Uh, Great to be here, man. Hey man, it's such a, so great to finally catch up with you and uh, and I you know I, I did I just kind of wanted to ask you if you feel like rhythm has helped save your life. Yeah, it's actually uh, funny that you should frame it like that because I can honestly say that it it definitely did. Um, you know, I uh, since the time I became conscious. <laughs> And into this world, you know, I always had a relationship with rhythm and was really strong in my soul, you know. And um, there was a time in my life where, you know, when I was a teenager, I was hanging around with kind of a crazier crowd. And then I was hanging around with a real artsy crowd. And, uh, yeah, you know, I just gravitated towards that. And... um, really got into it and was thankful that these older musicians would let me hang around with them and I learned a lot and and just started uh just being around musicians all the time and then eventually started to play uh hand drums and yeah there were some times in my life where it definitely you know it was it was the uh the guiding light, if you will, you know, that made me make decisions like, well, you know, if I do this, then I won't be able to play music, you know, so I'm going to stay on the course and stay with the people that are on that path, you know, and it's, it's served me well. I mean, I've, I've been able to travel around the country and, and play with some people that are just, you know, amazing musicians and had just amazing experiences, you know, and it's all because of, you know, music and drums, you know, they've just taken me all over the place. Hmm. Uh, Could you give an example of staying on the righteous path? Uh, You said you hung out with a wilder crowd. Uh, 
I just know that you know Arjun, uh, our dear friend Arjun. I mean, he, the guy was playing uh, <laughs> punk rock. I mean, I mean, just different types of musical settings. But I'm just it, like, was there a lot of debauchery going on? Did you have to steer clear of sort of realizing that you could wind up being roadkill if you didn't keep your head on straight? And that's music helped center you. Yeah, you know, I mean, my parents were really good. You know, I, my pa- I had a really, uh, you know, just middle class upbringing in this little town in New Jersey. And, you know, everything was cool. But it was just, yeah, you know, it wasn't that bad. But it could have gotten bad. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, I just, there, I just remember there was a defining moment. I was hanging around with some people that were just getting in trouble a lot, you know? Totally. And I was like, yeah. You know, just, I mean, you know, stealing and, you know, doing weird shit, you know, that, that. Yeah, know, I mean, just like a klepto it. phase. I, but yeah, you get deeper and deeper into that stuff. It's trouble, you know. Right, yeah. I mean, you, at some point you have to make a decision, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just, I just said, you know what, nothing, I don't want anything to stop me from being around artistic people you know and not to say that there's some artistic people that get in trouble too absolutely but, um, dude come on know, yeah. absolutely yeah. you know but uh that seemed to be uh worth the trip you know it's like okay uh, yeah there's a little bit of a crazy element in this world too but I could navigate that because there was a big payoff, you know, the, the payoff was art, you know, and being around music and learning and, you know, uh, eventually performing and then, you know, experiencing the energy of doing that. And I mean, it just, you know, it's just, I, I never got into drugs, you know, music was my drug, you know, well, that's I, a beautiful never, thing. I mean, that, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I think that, that some of the guys that, that I respect, the most, um, you know, because you listen to sometimes you listen to their playing and, and the collective unit and you're like, these cats are out of their minds. And then you find out that they never did a drug in their life. I'm thinking about two, two dear brothers in particular is Lenny White and Billy Cobham. Neither of those guys have ever done drugs. And, uh, right, yeah, Frank Zappa, Zappa you know, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately the guy smoked way too many cigarettes, but yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you, no, that, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where it's actually a blessing in my mind that you never got hooked into it because, you know, it not only do you get addicted, but then the whole idea is saying, well, can I actually reach this spiritual frequency? I felt so on high the other night because of these drugs, um, and how am I supposed to access that that frequency without them? People start, you know, tricking themselves into thinking that when. Uh, it's very possible just through the, the true nature and the force of music that you can get there. Um, but it was just a very, you know, especially in the, in the jazz community, uh, you know, in the, in the 50s, it was remarkable how many people, even in a very simplistic time before we were fully interconnected and there were no tabloids or iPhones or, you know, salacious media things, I mean, Everybody was like, well, you know, I mean, you know, Bird sounds like that because he's a junkie. We got to be a junkie, too, to sound like that, which was just not true. And that's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've heard other musicians say that, too, you know. I mean, I, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know what to think about that, you know. It's like, uh, how have you dealt, choice, I mean, have you, but, you know, how have you dealt with, like, being in bands with others, 
who they're if they had uh you know foibles or addictions the music was dragging can you i mean the fact that you were at least as clear-headed as you possibly could be without doing drugs how did you deal with people uh that that were having a negative impact on the music because of their drug use yeah well i was fortunate i i never i can't that's good that's great yeah i mean the, the there was a few instances you know back in the day when i was coming up you know and you you just wanted to get as much time on the bandstand as you possibly could because (laughs) you know that that's a really important thing to do so you know you would do that and then there are people that would you know get a little out of hand with alcohol or with whatever substance they were doing and then you'd see wow man you know like that's really impeding their their abilities you know and it's like i personally couldn't do i i i when I was young and I tried to play congas, I, even if I had half a beer, my arms would get like rubber. I, wow, I, I, it just, very interesting. It just, yeah, it just didn't work for me, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, I did. I I had to be a hundred percent together, you know. And then I'd see other people, you know, have a bottle of Jim Beam in their back pocket and sip that all night long and be able to play like like amazing, you know. But then I've seen other people been on a bandstand with other people where they they couldn't keep it together you know and that those kind of things i never really committed to they were more of like because i did a, a lot of sitting in you know as a percussionist you know you do you have to you have to realize you're going to do that, gonna, that well especially know, not, yeah i mean absolutely not not a uh, uh considered a central uh component to the to the unit all the time exactly yeah. so you you have to when you pick up that instrument, you know, you have to come to that realization until you meet the right people. Like when I met Arjun, that was our whole thing was like, we're going to do this and percussion's going to be the lead. Yes. You know, anybody that sits in yes. with us, the guitar player or the singer, they're in the background <laughs> and you know, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be the, the forefront and, and everything's going to revolve around the percussion, you know? So, yeah, but it, it, as far as uh, the drugs and alcohol thing, you know, it's like it's part of it. You do your best, and I always stayed clear when it got if it started getting really weird, um, I left. You know, I just and then you know, I mean, you just have to accept certain things, and it's part of the person's personality. So it's like anything else. You know, if it starts getting sticky or weird for you, you have to sit with yourself and say, you know what, it's time for me to move on. Nothing personal. I just have to, I'm, I'm moving in a different direction, you know? Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, aside from sitting in, uh, I, I just wonder, I guess the question that in my mind is, and it's a total hypothetical and you may not be able to answer it, but, um, I still feel, I mean, I'm 43. I think you have a few years on me. Um, yeah, I'm going to be 63 in a couple of well, weeks. Well, mazel tov, by the way. But the, <laughs> so you, I mean, you you really came up at a time when, it, yeah, it wasn't, you know, the Harlem Renaissance of the 50s or, you know, like the Red Hill Inn in Jersey with Miles and stuff. But there were still, did would you, I guess here's the question, knowing what we know today, would you still be as dogged about trying to sing for your supper as a prof- as a mu- professional musician uh, as you were back when you were uh, 
20 years old and approximately what would what would that have been 1980 early 80s uh yeah you know i mean like 1980 i was 20 so i mean i guess what i'm trying to get at is this idea like (laughs) only after 11 years now of doing my show all these interviews and disseminating them in all these different areas and trying to promote it as a rogue journalist only now am i actually making any money you know it's still not a lot of money but i'm finally making money and i just as a musician today we have uh it was never perfect but you know you'd have west montgomery go up to chuck wood on the street if he saw you with a cajon in your hand and stop you and shake your hand and talk to you for a while there there was so much studio work going on um and there were places to play and because the cost of living wasn't so great i mean you could play six nights a week at a at a pizza parlor playing congas and actually still make your rent in the lower west side and i know you didn't necessarily uh, you know live in new york or not but i just wonder if you'd what the challenges are, how much harder it is today to sing for your supper as a professional musician? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's a good question. That's a uh, multi-dimensional. There, I mean, yeah, yeah, go wherever you want. Uh, yeah, go wherever you want. Yeah, it's extremely difficult now. You know, I mean, I'm I'm kind of spoiled in a way because, like you said, you know, there. I mean, in Jersey, man, there everybody any little hole in the wall had live music right you know it was amazing you could be you know you there's just so many places everybody had live music a lot of times it was covers there wasn't a lot of opportunity in, for original acts you had to go to the city for that and that was a whole nother challenge you know that was weird <laughs> you know they'd make you pay and sell tickets and that was a whole kind of weird thing but I'm sorry, if you were, I'm just, I want to be clear, if you, even in the early 80s or whatever in New York, if you wanted to have a gig, it would be on you to sell the tickets, put butts in the seats and advertise it and, and, or even pay to actually rent the, the, the venue. Yeah, if you were if you were an original act, I did. If you were I did. if you were a cover band, if you did covers or something, or if you like yeah, did recognizable music yeah, or something, yeah, you, yeah. you could. It wasn't as hard, but if you wanted to put a, a band together. And you wanted to be an original act, and you wanted to play Kenny's Castaways or, you know, the Bitter End or all those places where you know a lot of bands broke. You know, yeah. Um, you had to really slog it, man. You know, you had to promote yourself. You had to get out there and put the flyers on the around New York City, all around Jersey. You had to do a, a written out mailing list. You had to <laughs> physically write it out. And then put stamps on it, and you know, we used to have nights where okay, it's it's uh, it's flyer night, you know, <laughs> and you have to sit there and handwrite everything out and mail this stuff out. I mean, it was a whole whole other world without the internet. But having said that, there were opportunities. Now, um, I don't know, man. It's it's a lot harder to find places to play, and as far as money. You know, um, it's very difficult. You have to, uh, yeah, I got to get out there and, and, and do the, do the the same kind of thing. Now these, these cover bands, these tribute bands are blowing up and people that are in those seem to be able to make a living relatively easy, but, um, no, but I I think it's very disconcerting. I, I, I really, yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. That's a whole conversation. I have a, I have a weird, um, it's it's interesting. I, I yeah, I, I don't 
I'm with you. I, Listen, I, I just you don't have to, you don't have to cough anything up. It's just it, it's just um, I you know I know authenticity when I see it, and I don't shy away from certain bands that are quote unquote cover bands. Uh, if I think that they're just incredibly amazing musicians who maybe came from a completely different background from the music that they're covering, but the mere fact that I'm looking at like New Year's Eve gigs coming up this year in this time that we're in, and it's like covering Hendrix and the Grateful Dead. I mean, I don't see any opportunity to market or commodify original music uh, that, that's, that has any kind of sophistication. It's very worrisome to me. I mean, not that it was ever easy, but it's just now it's just like cover or bust. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because back in the 70s, at least around here in, the, in New Jersey, it was kind of like that. Like, if you snuck in an original tune now or then, you could get away with it, you know. But for the most part, we had to play covers. You know, we had to do three sets of covers, and we try to sneak in an original. You, know? <laughs> and, and you could like, do it, yeah. No, you could do it like on the third set or something. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah at the end of the night, right. you know, I was like, oh, let's do that cover. You know, let's do that original. But um, then, yeah, the, then every once in a while. There'd be like a place where you could, where the venue would only have original music. And there was a, you know, there was a, there was like a scene uh, in New Jersey here in the... Yeah, by uh, the way, uh, I, I, New Jersey, like all my best friends and I'm from Long Island, you know, so Jersey is the biggest, smallest place. What, what part of Jersey are you talking about? Because it's a big place, actually. Yeah, I'm in northwest New Jersey. I'm up I'm up not too far from the Delaware Water Gap, you know. Whoa, so like so the, the, the deer head yeah, in the, Yeah, the deer head yeah, in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, about, I'm, about, I'm about 20 minutes from the deer head. Oh, that is yeah. so... Dude, you ever play there with Bill Goodwin? That would be a sick place to play, dude. No, but I did play uh, one of their jazz festivals, and Phil Woods was there. You oh, know, man, Phil. My, yeah. I, dude, I, I got to yeah. say, my, that interview was epic. I did with him. I love that man, dude. Yeah, he was uh, he was something, man. You know, he had this. He lived there, and he uh, he would have this jazz festival uh, once a year, and they did it outside, and they got a stage and everything. And then a good friend of mine, Len Mooney, had this band called the Roman Gabriels, and I played on his record, and he said, "Hey, man, you know, we got asked to play the jazz festival." And, so I did that, you know, and I met him and stuff. He actually handed me my check. <laughs> I love dude. The guy was so yeah. freaking bad. I mean, so, the guy was like literally. Uh, I mean, he was on a bus with. Uh, I want to say it was. Well, it was Lester Young and some? I think Coleman Hawkins, one of the guys. Just, I mean, that's he was just in the. He was in the in the. The grease with those guys, man. I mean, he was straight out of that beautiful time in our country's history when it was all i mean even i just found this this four record set sealed of uh <coughs> the cover is cannonball and nat adderley on the front but it's like all these black jazzers playing the standards out of the american songbook and it's just burning it's just the most burning thing in the world um wow yeah man it's just like randy weston and you know, the, the Cannonball, Max Roach, I mean, you know, and, and just, so, I mean, even what was considered popular standard American songbook music, I mean, those guys could turn those tunes upside down and inside out and get away with it and get even paid for it. Uh, yeah. 
Right, exactly. In, in this, was there a club you can talk about that uh, in the seventies that you had a steady gig where um, it was more than just sneaking in an original at the end of the night, but it was actually maybe you know more, more of a workshop that you guys could really just shit on the original stuff that you had been working on. No, you know, I can't really think of one. There used to be this place down in East Orange, but you know, the, the name of it. Escapes escapes I, right I would now. love if, if it comes to your head. I'd love. I mean, to me, like it's yeah. that's humbling. It's all so. It's really always. I'm not trying to sound naive, but outs- if you didn't have a really reputable name, I guess even the free jazz guys, like they were always sort of, you know, on the margins to a degree. How ultimately did you? Um, I just got off the phone with Roger Humphreys, who was the drummer on "Song for My Father" with Horace Silver, and you know, once he got with Horace, and he was on the road for 250 days a year. I mean, the bread wasn't that great, but he was still able to sing for his supper, didn't have to pick up other other gigs. I mean, do you feel like, uh, when did, were you able to um, get to a point where you were able to sing for your supper playing, uh, just playing music or teaching? Well, you know, it was always uh, being a being a percussionist you know like we were talking about you're not you're not always i dig yeah you're you're the color you know you're the, the you're the ear candy or whatever you want to say you know and so you don't have to be there until you're you know uh involved in some kind of situation like a full-on latin band or african band where it's an integral part of the music and when i was uh coming up i was playing in grateful dead cover bands you know cover bands that would do Almond Brothers and Santana and um, so I started out playing congas doing that so yeah I used to be able to make uh, you know money on the weekends you know I had a day job and then I didn't really start teaching until I got into the African stuff you know that's when I started to teach uh, hand drums you know djembe specifically and dune dune but yeah man it's just been a it's been a it's been a back and forth with a day job and playing on the weekends. You know, at one time I was working a day job and playing four and five nights a week. Oh, that, you know, see, that make, could really, rent. but yeah. you know, I was in my twenties, so it was, <laughs> it was, it was not a problem, you know, but, um, now as I get older, you know, I look back at, at what I used to do and I was like, man, how did I do that? You know, I was like, like a machine. But the instrument itself is very physical, so I, you know, I, I stayed in shape. You know, I mean, I and I, I didn't drink and party a lot, so, you know, I, I was able to do it. You know, and and for me, it was more about experience on the bandstand than it was about money. So I had no problem working a day job if it was gonna help me, you know, be able to pick the type of work or the kind of music and art that I wanted to do so that I could get better in, in the, uh, in the style that I wanted to get better in. I'd rather work a day job. This is me personally. I'd rather work a day job and be specific with the things that I did artistically rather than have to like, I saw some of my friends, you know, just take any gig so that they could pay the rent and they just get beat up. You know, they just be like, Oh man, you know, I got to go to work you know, that it started to become a drudgery and I, I didn't want to do that, you know. And I understand why you want why people do that. You know, they 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 are they're musicians, they wanna create, they wanna 
do that, but I, I, I just made a different deal with myself. I, I just, you know, um, no, I dude, I, I love what you're, this is a Julian Priester, <laughs> the great bone player. He, I mean, there's this fine line between being an artist and being a musician in the sense that what you were just saying where cats have to take the, the funk gig or, you know, the wedding gig because it's going to pay their bills, but they're, they just dread that stuff because they can't, as opposed to being an artist. Uh, where you're actually able to play the music that you want to play. So, I mean, it's fair to say that when even when you were working during the week, a regular day day gig, when you were going out playing four nights, five nights a week, that was music that you were getting off on. Exactly, yeah. you know, and I could, I could make those choices. I didn't have to do something that was going to uh, pull me down, you know. I totally. Mean, everything for me is based around you know, energy. So anything that's going to start to pull away from that energy that helps you keep going and have a good, clear understanding of what you're really trying to do, you know, you, you have to keep checking in with yourself. Like, why am I doing this? What do I want to do with this? You know, like, what is this to my life in my life? You know, and for me, it's just always been about trying to be truthful, you know, because let's face it, I, I didn't, I didn't grow up with these instruments in my closet. You know, I mean, I'm just a white guy from a little town in New Jersey, and the the, the diversity, racial diversity in my town was nil. You know, so <laughs> I had but to, yeah, you, I yeah, had to, yeah. I had to figure this out. You know, and there was nobody to take lessons with her, and so I had to just, I had to come to an understanding that you know what, if I'm going to do this. It has to be real for me. So I'm not going to try to do something that's going to take away from that, you know, that the, 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 the purity of it. I just want to try to get as good as I can on these instruments and, and learn from the, the best people that I can and try to stay pure with it. That's it. You know, that's, that's what I want to get out of it. Money. And making a living, that's that you're walking into another world, you know, you're you're walking into another situation when that has to be part of it, you know, and I understand why people do it. But for me, I, I just chose to do, you know, that, you know, try to just stay honest with myself so that I could play these instruments and people would say, well, He's not great, or he's good, or he's this or that, but hopefully they feel that I'm being honest. You know, I wanted to keep it honest. You know? No, I dig. I, I just that's such a men great mentality to have, and um, you know, it's. Uh, I, I just I wonder about the first time that uh, you know you sort of uh, took in, or you know auditorily digested or uh, visually and auditorily digested sort of an African drum choir. Uh, for me, you know, it's very cathartic uh, to have what sounds like this incredibly complex, you know, uh, smorgasbord of rhythm going on when in fact, and it is, but it's actually everybody playing their own part and fitting it together in this puzzle. And it's intoxicating. And, you know, I just wonder when you, like, maybe you'd heard African percussion or you'd you'd heard certain 
<clears throat> records, but then there was this cathartic moment when, you know, you uh, either got involved with an ensemble or witnessed something that was so inspiring that, you you know, you dedicated your musical life and honest interpretation of African music. I could tell you exactly when that happened. <laughs> um, I was, you know, when I was young, really young, and listened to music, and everybody was into the Beatles and Stones, that stuff never really hit me. Right. It does now. Yeah, like, I, I yeah. love the Stones now, you know? <laughs> yeah. But when I was young, what turned me on were the Temptations. I still remember the very first time I ever heard James Brown. I heard Hot Pants on the radio. Uh, and, you know, I was probably like seven or eight years old, you know. But it was always black music, you know. It was always R&B that really, really touched me, you know. Like, I just couldn't explain it, you know. I was like, wow, you know. like, And then, um, you know, I would be banging on pots and pans, desks and everything and, and feeling rhythm and stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, I just never really got into the English bands and stuff until I was a teenager, you know, and got into Hendrix and cream and all that stuff. But real young, when I was real young, that R and B and stacks, all that stuff, you know, really penetrated me, man. It really got to me. And, you know, then I, I got a snare drum when I was like 13 or 14. And, you know, my parents didn't really want to pay for drum lessons and stuff. They said, oh, you know, you could take, you know, band in school. and But I really didn't want to do that, you know. So I got a snare drum, started knocking around on that. <laughs> but that always seemed like a little bit disconnected because of the sticks or something. Right, you know? I, just, right. I, didn't, I, feel, I didn't feel a deep connection to it, you know. I tried to learn the rudiments and had some friends teach me. So I thought, okay, cool. And then when I was like, probably like 15 or six, probably about 15, they used to um, do those midnight movies showings, you know, like Rocky Horror Picture, like midnight, you know, at the local theater. And then they started having rock movies. Really? And this is really, yeah. I mean, I know that <laughs> going yeah. back to the, 20 years before that, I mean, Charlie Persip and drummers like that, I mean, they there would be matinees and then it, followed by bands playing in the movie theater, then more movies. It was kind of like that was the entertainment of the day. But you're saying in the 70s or whenever, in the 60s, there would be, they'd start showing late night rock movies in the movie yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like like uh, live at Pompeii, Pink Floyd at Pompeii, Isle of Wight. Yeah, that kind of. Yeah, I Isle love of Wight, it. Wow. Yeah. Well, wow. one night they showed Woodstock. <laughs> and they uh, did. Wow, that's unbelievable. How many? And we, what year was, I, was this? Like 10? I was probably I was like fifteen, and I, I was again. I, you know, I was like this younger dude, but I, I was fortunate because these older musicians. When I say older, they're just a couple of years older. But, you know, when you're 15 and somebody else is 18, you know, you're kind of like, hey. You there's, a big, there's a big difference then. No, definitely. But yeah. they, 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 they were cool, you know. They, yeah. they let me hang out, you know. So <laughs> we we went to go see Woodstock. And uh, when it got to that Santana segment, man. Yo, man. Just, that, you know, I'll just, tell you, break it down. Said, break right, it down. You know it. what? Yeah, break it I'm down. I'm done. Now I know what I want to do. 
you know. Because and, I, you know, uh, I've, I've been, I, yeah, I've been I, blessed I call, enough. I called this drummer friend of mine, and I said, "Listen, man, you, I know you know a lot of people and stuff." I said, "You ever come set across uh, across a set of congas? You, you know, just let me know, you know." So I guess about maybe like. I don't know, man. It's so weird how life is, you know. It's so crazy when you put stuff out to the universe. You know, he about a week goes by, and he calls me and says, Dude, you're not going to believe this. I was at this person's house, and they were getting rid of this stuff, and they said I could have anything I wanted from this old barn. And he goes, I walked in there, and there were these two condas in there. It's meant for you. So I got them. They're at my house. So I went over there. Well, he goes, they need a little bit of work. <laughs> But they were falling apart. They were staved drums, you wow. know, like, so they were falling apart. They must have been sitting, the heads were blown and everything. So my dad and I, we fixed them all up. I still have them. They're in my bedroom. And we put skins on. That is so I, great. And, and that was it, man. I just, I, I just started, you know, going at it on those things and you know beat my hands to a pulp because i didn't know what i was doing i had no idea what technique i had no technique i was my hands would turn black you know from breaking blood vessels and i'd get corns on my hands i knew nothing you know i i knew nothing i had to just i just sat in my room and i just loved it so much i just kept doing so I'll, I'll figure it out you know somehow i'll figure it out you know and that was the beginning, and I just, it was just full speed ahead from that point on, you know. Um, you know, I've, I've had the the good fortune of, I'm a, Michael Shreve is a dear friend, and I've interviewed him a bunch of times, and Michael Carabello, who was on the stage that day, and that was really the first time uh, <laughs> that, you know, uh, Afro-Cuban rhythms were incorporated into, I guess, Latin rock on the East Coast. Anyway, I mean, you had Tito Puente playing, but that was much more like salsa, uh, Afro-Cuban music. Uh, this was Latin rock. And what, could you just talk a little bit about what, and then there was, uh, his name is escaping me right now. Uh, uh, but, the, you know, there were multiple percussionists on the stage with Carlos, Michael Shreve was not a Latin player. He was a jazz drummer. But I just wonder about, you know, sort of the, uh, uh, Chapito was his name. Uh, yeah, Chapito. Chapito. Yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. My, one of my idols. Yeah, and so, like, what was it specifically? Because those guys were cool-looking cats, too. I mean, they looked cool, you know, but they were also playing their ass off. Um, exactly. And yeah. was it just the idea of, was it maybe one of the first times that, you know, incorporating ethnic percussion in "quote unquote" rock music really worked for you. Worked for anybody. Yeah. Well, what it did, what it did was made me go back ah. and listen to those records that I grew up with, The wow. Temptations and all the Stack stuff and Sly. You know, and it just made me realize that are those are the instruments that influenced the rhythm and those R and B records. I never knew what it was when I was a, when I was a young kid, you know, what, what, what was making that sound. But when I saw the Woodstock movie, it came full circle. It's like, no wonder I love the Temptations and all the all the, that music and stuff so much because it's drenched with congas, you know, Mar the Marvin Gaye stuff and everything. 
all that stuff, it just all made sense when I sat there and watched the movie. I said, those are the instruments that are making that happen. And so talk about talk about stacks, though, because Al Jackson, there was not a lot of percussion on on the stack stuff. No, but it was just you could tell it was derived from African rhythms, you know, you could tell that those guys were 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 listening to to that stuff. Yeah, Al Green was down there. Totally. I did. Somehow it was getting into their DNA. (laughs) So, um, so you get was, the congas. I mean, can you talk to cats though? I mean, I I would say that if you and Mongo or Willie <coughs> Willie Bobo played timbales, but I mean, you're in a room, Mongo would and you could could talk shop for a while. And one of the first things when you t- talk about is just developing blisters and bleeding. And, and you know, you claim you didn't know what you were doing. You were having so much fun. You were bashing away. But I mean, it's the same thing with upright bass players. You gotta you gotta develop the blisters and. I mean that's yeah. that's part of it, man. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's all part of it, you know. But it, it's 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 like anything, man. You know, it's those are the kind of things that make you know make it worth your while because you can look back and say, like talking to you now, I'm like, I remember when I did that, and I remember all the pain I went through, and now I don't have to do that, you know. <laughs> but it's like it's like it's like the journey, you know. Yeah. It's like your memories, you know. You're your life, you know, your experiences, you know, these are the things that make a rich life, you know? And so I don't look back at with negativity at all. It's like, well, look at that, man. I pushed through it. I, you know, I, I just kept going, even though it, it hurt me and was, you know, I was damaging my hands and everything, but I wanted it so badly that I, it, I didn't let anything stop me. And my family, you know, they didn't understand, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, where is this coming from? I love it, dude. Like, I freaking nobody plays love these it. instruments. My mom, my mom is a, a really amazing singer, and my dad just loves music. He used to rush home to the house when bands were practicing at my house because he's not that much. He was twenty years old when he had me, so he's you know he dressed like us and he liked the same music and stuff. So, you know, he loved having the music in the house. So, it just. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 thing that they were doing was on, on stage at Woodstock was so powerful to me. It just was like, I mean, this is just, you know, I mean, I get chills talking about it now. You know, it just it just was like these guys, man, are doing something, and I want to do that. And when you when you look, if you have the Woodstock video. I encourage you to like watch Michael Shreve's drum solo in slow motion and look at his face and his body language. Watch that drum solo in slow motion and it it is like watching somebody's soul explode into the universe. I mean it just you can at least I could. I can feel everything coming off that guy you know all of them all of them. well you know it's funny <clears throat> it's because it, michael uh for a long time uh thought he was going to be a priest I and mean, he's a pretty pretty religious uh, i don't know what the spiritual person and uh it's just so beautiful to hear you say that that's such a, an amazing so slowing it down brings out the spirit well you can see it easier yeah. it's there when it's at running time. 
But when you slow it down, you can see <coughs> his body go through it, and it's it's like watching all the energy come from his soul out. I mean, it's just. That's how you know. Some people might think I'm out of my mind. Uh, no, I, 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 it's, it's. A, it, he, he, he's, he is in. He is absolutely on a different frequency. The whole band. I mean, they, they it, it. Well, you know, people talk about being in the zone, right? The zone. You hear yeah, that, that was the zone. Yeah. yeah, man. You know, the band was in the zone. Well, that to me is physical manifestation of him being in the zone. You can see it. You can see it. It's in in real time if you slow it down and just watch, watch it, man. It's beautiful. It's like it's like a it's like a piece of art in and of itself. You don't even have to have the sound on. Turn the sound off and just watch him. And he he there's there's no way that guy's thinking about the laundry or if he's got to pay the rent or if his girlfriend's upset with him. He is one with the music. That's it. You know, and that's what I always strive to do, you know, and they I was lucky enough to see that. I didn't understand what was going on. It's taken me years to understand what what that's all about. But that's really the goal for me now with music is to get to that place. You know, <laughs> I want to read you this excerpt and then I, you can riff on it any way you want. I, I was honored. I had an opportunity to interview uh, Pete Escovito, you know, uh, Coke's brother. Also oh, played. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's great. So this is what he told me in the story. He said, this is a true story. When I was called to play congas with Carlos, my brother Coke was already in the band playing timbales. Michael Carabello was leaving the band and he was their regular conga player. I was working in the Bay Area and Coke comes into where I was playing and tells me I have the gig in Santana's band. <coughs> he says... We have to leave tomorrow to play at Madison Square Garden four straight nights. I said, how am I going to learn the songs? He said, I have a tape. We'll listen to it on the flight to New York. Lo and behold, I get to New York. We start playing the songs, and I'm playing congas, and I cut my hand the first night I started on the gig. It didn't heal for a while, but I played anyway because I was so excited to play with Carlos in front of thousands of people. I didn't even think about my hand hurting. I had it taped up and bandaged up, but I still played. Later on, it really bothered me, so we had to call in another player to help me out, and that was Mingo Lewis. Sometimes you deal with the pain because it's something you love to do. Can you talk about being on a tour or in a band with a lot of percussion where you played through the pain because the feeling of the communal spiritual healing of music was just that much more powerful? Yeah, I mean, sure. When Arjun and I were touring... You know, with Gandharva's percussion yeah. duo. Yeah. You know, um, it was just he and I in a van and a small little trailer. And, you know, we, uh, it's just percussion. So I was playing congas, djembe, um, let's see, barambao. You know, all hand percussion. There's no bass, there's no guitar, there's no vocals. We had to do two hours, two to three hour sets to just, and entertain people with just percussion, you know? And, yeah, some of those drives, your body aches, and uh, you're not necessarily sleeping well, or, you know, whatever, and you're a little bit drained. But the music, as soon as you 
as soon as we would get on stage, it's like a like you get a shot of adrenaline, you know, like, and you you can just for us we could we could get through it, you know, we could just hit it, you know, because that's why we were there. That was the job we had to do, and our bodies were used to that, you know. We trained ourselves to do that. We would before we did any big tour, we would always we would just hit open mics like four and five nights a week and, and you know <laughs> that's all yeah you get stamina we, we yeah. yeah we practiced back in the early 2000s when we got together there were all these open mics all over the place you know at these coffee houses and that's really how we came to make a record because we play these coffee houses and after we play the people say hey man you guys are great do you have a record and we'd say, hmm, no. And every time, every time we play, they'd say it. So six months after we got together, we said, we, we should make a record because people keep asking for recordings. So that's what we did. And then, you know, we just conditioned ourselves. You know, we would get in shape. And uh, it, basically it was just from playing. We would play two and a half hour sets without a break because once we got the energy going, in the early days, we tried doing like two sets, right? But that that didn't work. That just didn't work well, because you, you stunt all the momentum. The energy, yeah. We get the energy so cranked, man, and then we take a break, and then it's like, oh god, we got to start the engine again. <laughs> so what we learned was it was just better to get started and just keep the train rolling. I, lo- then, I and, love I love that, dude. I got a. I, I'm thinking about a current current band that I love a lot. Actually, it was formed by the late great Neil Casal, Circles Around the Sun, and they've turned into a band that does not want to stop the motor. Uh, no, no, Just one long set, maybe two and a half hours, because there's no point in stopping and starting again. I just, I love that mentality. I mean, did you, <clears throat> was there a, a gig? I just also know, sometimes, like, when you're either really sick or you know i guess part of it's also like you get the energy going but on top of that either you know you're in dis-ease or uncomfortability because maybe you don't your hands are hurting or you're actually under the weather and at that point your focus is not on the person in the crowd or who's showing up or you know all the other things that are kind of irrelevant but it's just focusing on not just getting through the gig, but actually getting into bed or, or getting to a place of comfort. And so you're almost playing in beyond what you know. I just remember the drummer from, from Stuff, the original drummer, Chris Parker, he he had pneumonia coming back from New Orleans and everyone's like he was like he was like feeling like death. And everyone's like, You gotta go to the hospital, dude. And, and that night he was scheduled to play double drums with Steve Gadd, who eventually took the took the job from him, took over for him. And he's like, I'm not missing this gig. And he shows up, and he is just, I mean, he should be in bed. And he gets on the bandstand, and all he could think about was just surviving. And he was so out of his thinking mind that when he got off the bandstand, people were coming up to him and said, man, I've never heard you play like that in your life. That was incredible. Is there something? Is there something along those lines where you were the sort of the, the magic of and the transcendence of the rhythm carried you through when you probably should have been in bed? Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, the thing is, the drumming, the drumming is very healing. You know, it it really, 
you know, you're working with energy. <laughs> totally. So, yeah, you just... Um, That's interesting. It's like yeah, almost like... Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, so, sometimes when you're sleepy, you know, when you're a little tired, you actually play better because you're just so relaxed, you know? And then if you can really get into a place where you're just kind of like, you know, the drums kind of will guide you, mm. you know? They'll tell you, okay, we're going to play fast tonight or we're going to dial it back tonight you know let's just like groove slower or something like that and that's the one thing that arjun and i were really good about really good uh at doing was finding the energy where we both were and then working that you know with tempo with tonality you know all those kind of things but yeah there were times you know where he would uh be in pain, you know, um, especially, you know, you have to sit in that posture to play tabla and, um, or, you know, something happens, you're unloading at the gig or something and something happens to your hand. Um, and you gotta tape it up and, and just go through it. But it always seems like once you, if you can get on stage and everything's set up and it's sounding good, you know, usually it's going to, be okay. Yeah, you access, yeah. <laughs> but it's a matter, you know, that's the thing I need to talk to you about. <clears throat> You're right, 100%. Because, but you have to be able to access what John Molo, the drummer, calls, you know, the primordial gut, like being able to go into the deep into the soul, uh, go, go out of your head, beneath your heart, into your soul, and derive that spirit to come out and not everybody is able to get there either because they're afraid of going over playing beyond what they know or um you know they're they're not they're they're used to just performing in a more formula trip kind of uh experience i just wonder what your advice would be to younger percussionists or you know musicians in general who (coughs) you know you know maybe they they are you know, they're, they have gigs on the books, uh, they're playing gigs, but essentially they're playing the same song the same way every night. And while they're making some dough, uh, they know that in order to grow, they have to keep pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. And I just wonder what your advice would be to, to those cats. Yeah, well, I mean, keep your ear to the ground. And, um, what does that mean? Well, for, for, keep your ear to the ground for uh artistic uh possibilities Mm -hmm. you know and um just be humble and um stay you know open to learning and you know hopefully uh you'll you know if you stay you know on the search the right people will come along and will help you uh, get where you need to be, you know? I mean, that's what happened to me. You mentioned Neil before. Yeah. Neil's a really good friend of mine, man. I've known Neil. I knew Neil when he was 23 years old, man. He grew up in the town, one town away from me. No way. Oh, yeah. He's on my record. Well, no, I knew, yeah. I knew that. You, I mean, you, Ginty, and, and I just didn't know that you knew him way back when. Well, I knew I, he wasn't 23. I met him when he was probably 26. So I had a little percussion ensemble 
and we used to play these coffee houses. <laughs> and he used to come and see me. He and Gary used to come and see me. Um, Waldman, Waldman was showing up. Uh, this is unbelievable. You have to. Wait. Oh yeah, Gary. Gary's from Morristown. Oh. See, there's a whole enclave in North Jersey. You know that. It's an amazing little place. Somebody should write a book about Absolutely, it. Absolutely, dude. There's this amazing spot in New Jersey where all these people came from, you know, and um, Ginty and Neil and Dan Fadell. <laughs> Dan, and, I mean, dude, you're warming my heart right now, dude. Oh, yeah. Dan Fadell grew up in Mount Tabor, the same town I did. I know Danny really well. Yeah, man. He's I mean, I know sweetheart. all those guys, you know. But my relationship with Neil started when I had this little percussion ensemble. And he was just doing his singer-songwriter thing, you know, solo. And then I was right there when he got his record deal, and I played gigs with him from time to time. And then, and then I started playing on his records, you know, just just small stuff, you know, shakers and stuff. I literally really wasn't playing a lot of percussion. But one of his favorite records, and definitely mine, is Basement Dreams. And that we did in the town that he was living which is 20 minutes 15 minutes from where i live right now and we did it in his basement oh not his basement God, in this little this side thing. room and and he he called me up one day and he said hey man you know like i'm making this record and i want my friends to be on it and you know uh, i want you to just bring one any instrument you want and you can play it. i said what he said yeah anything any one of those crazy things you play just bring it up to my house. I want to record it. I said, okay. So I brought my Baron Bow, wow. which is a Brazilian percussion instrument. And he said, yeah, man, let's record that, you know? So we recorded that and that's on the record. And then, and then he said, I need you to play some tambourine and some other things on it, you know? And like that record is, I'm really proud to be a part of that. Cause that's a really highly acclaimed record of his. It's my, this is a great record, dude. I mean, did you, yeah. So you're telling me that, <clears throat> so well, who was in this ensemble that you'd play at that Waldman and Casal would show up at? I mean, this is really legendary stuff. Well, this is, this is, this was way back. Yeah, the, I want to go way back. Yeah. Yeah, this is, so this was like, uh, 90, like 93, 94. It was all a bunch of people that had, uh, got into hand drumming because, you know, back in 93, you know, Jambe and all the African stuff was blowing up because of Mickey Hart and Planet Drum. That's right. So I had studied with Ola Tunji in 86. Really? And, yeah. Well, and, how did that, um, whoa, that's just, that you just blew my mind on that one. Go ahead. Yeah, well, he blew my mind too. So <laughs> that guy, that, he changed my life, you know. But, um, hmm. yeah, I started, I studied with Ola Tunji in 86 and really got into Jambe then. And then started studying with all these African guys because in the late 80s, early 90s, Africa, I mean, New York was like Africa. There was like the Leslie Skate School and Olatunji School. And you could go in and study with these guys, you know, for $10 an hour. And, you know, they didn't speak any English, but it's it's taught in call and response technique. Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah, it's exactly. There's no, writ there's no written African music to them. They It's all call and response. So. You know, I take classes with those guys and learn all this stuff. And then somebody posted this ad in a little head shop in Morristown, New Jersey. Drummers getting together on Tuesday nights. Come and join the rhythm. <laughs> You're like, boom, baby. That's so, it. You know, so I, I said, oh, I got to go do check this out. So I went there and it was this 
it was this guy who was a little bit older than me and a bunch of college kids. And um, uh, they were in this basement and they were drumming, you know. And they said, wow, you know, like you seem to know some stuff. I said, well, yeah, you know, I studied a little bit. They said, well, would you teach us? And I said, I'll, I'll teach you what I know, you know. So we started putting rhythms together and stuff and we started in this in this basement and that was in the winter and then the weather broke and there there were a lot of really beautiful parks around here and so the one guy who started it said oh let's do it out in the park you know okay so on tuesday nights we'd go up to the park it was me and maybe three or four other guys by the end of that summer there were 60 people coming every tuesday get out of here it, it got so crazy that the park police came and started telling us that we needed a, a, a permit and we needed people to direct traffic. It's like, hey, man, I just came up here to play my drums and all these people came. You know, I got to stop, stop you, though. I mean, that to me, <laughs> that's reminiscent of Griffith Park in L.A. back exactly. in, the, in the, you know, yeah. but, but I just want to say, like, it's very cool for me to know that, in the early nineties, that was, you still were able to taste, not just taste it, but really see it unfold in front of your very eyes. That's remarkable. Cause it's yeah, hard. It it's a, hard today, it man. A, they'll, they'll shut that stuff down in a minute before it gets any momentum. Yeah. Yeah. We were really lucky, you know, because, uh, it just was, it was just one of those magical times. Pre nine 11, very, very steady. Yeah. And then, yeah. You know, it's just like all the stars lined up, man, in the early nineties. And then you had that, whole Grateful Dead parking lot drumming scene and then Mickey Hart did that Planet record, Planet uh, drum record and it just exploded, you know. I mean, Olatunji was playing at the Wetlands in New York City like every month. People would go in and, you know, and, 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 you know they'd just go in and see him play and then he was teaching. And, you know, it was just this big whirlwind of hand drumming. It was just exploding. And I was, I was right at the right place at the right time because let me tell you something man when i went up in 86 to study with olatunji at up in rhinebeck new york there were a bunch of people in the class and not one person had a djembe they all had congas and i saw him play in djembe and i was just like oh my god man it just blew my heart open i went right to the city and bought a djembe like two days later and just started on that whole African side of things, you know? And so everybody was like, what is that drum, man? You know, that's, that's a weird drum, you know, like, and then all of a sudden, two years later, it's like the drum. Everybody wants one. Remo starts making synthetic ones. LPs making synthetic jumpers. It just exploded, man. You know, I had just stumbled upon it by accident and loved it. And then, was just it just unfolded so for the, me and I was, you were not really you were not aware of that instrument till you saw Tanjay riffing on it in Rhineband. No, I'll, I'll tell you how it happened. Yeah. I was I was playing in a Grateful Dead cover band in probably like eighty winter of eighty five. Oh my god, uh, that's like the greatest! I can I just loved I just put me back there immediately, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so I was I was playing I was playing up in this club in upstate New York right on the New York Jersey border and this guy was in the audience you know and the the band was really good they were you know friends of mine from from back in the day high school you know and they they really had it down and we used they used to do a lot of reggae they'd throw in some Santana when I sat in and 
couple Allman Brothers tunes, and but it was mostly a lot of Grateful Dead, you know. Sure. And th- and this guy was in the audience. He's a great friend of mine now. His name's Andrew Bloom. And you know, I was still at that stage where I was trying to learn to get the sounds on the conga, you know. And he came up to me and said, "Hey, man, you know, I really enjoy your your band and what you're doing, and you know, I play congas too. You know, would you mind if I sit in?" And I said, "Well." You know, a lot of people think they can play congas, you know, but they really can't. And they don't, you know, sure. I don't know. it's a weird kind of thing. But so I said, well, let me talk to the band, you know, because it's not my band. But he came over to the drum and he he made a slap tone on the on the conga. And I was like, hey, man, how'd you do that? He goes, oh, yeah, like this. And I said, I got to know this guy. <laughs> and uh, and he started telling me about his life and how he, who the people he studied with. And he knew a lot of traditional uh, Afro-Cuban rhythms. And um, he sat in with the band that night. And that was it, man. We became really good friends. I used to go to his house and we'd just sit there and play congas all day and stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that night. He said to me, are you familiar with the Santana song, Jingo? And I said, oh, of course. And he said, well, the guy that wrote that song teaches and does workshops at this place uh, up in Rhinebeck, New York. And my brother is like an assistant to him. And he's really accessible. He's Olatunji, you know, Baba Tunda Olatunji. And you can actually study with that guy. I said, what? He goes, yeah, man, I'll give you the information. So that was February of like 86 and that spring of 86 is when I went up to Rhinebeck and took those classes and then started my journey on the whole thing. He pulled out the djembe, man. I just, like I said, it just blew my heart open and I I had to, had to get one and that put me on the, on the traditional African path and there was no looking back after that. So when I met those people in like 93, um, there were, I pulled out like five or six of them and we put together a little ensemble. A gem, djembe ensemble. Did, yeah, it was djembe, dun dun, shakere, um, a couple of congas. Um, my God, Casal yeah. and, and Walden were freaking out in the crowd. Dude. They never heard anything like that. Dude. Yeah. So we'd go to these, we'd go to these like coffee houses. And we were actually getting gigs, paying gigs. <laughs> I love it. And we, we played weddings. We played, we played coffee houses. We didn't really, I didn't want to do it in bars or restaurants or anything. I still don't. I haven't played in a bar. Since yeah, I mean, now. that stuff gets really, like, it can get real, like, <laughs> uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, just acoustically watered out. You can't hear, you lose some of that dynamics and you can't hear everybody. Well, not only that. The energy of the drums around alcohol, it's not good. Um, <laughs> no, dude, you know, I understand what you're saying. I, you know, I think, it, it, you know, it a yeah, weird. Malton, no, listen, if you're in, you know, <coughs> some kind of, you know, rock and roll biker bar with a lot of people drinking, it's the recipe for very, very bad music. Um, I think... Um, a couple things that just popped into my head. Uh, did you know, or did you ever come across, uh, Richard Pablo Landrum, the Congo player? Oh, the name sounds familiar. He, he very, no. very much a, 
I mean, here's the point is that like Bill Summers, who's, you know, was with the headhunters and obviously came up with that classic African whistle to the watermelon man on Herbie's album and was, you know, was with him for a long time. Um, he remembers going to see spiritual drumming in Harlem led by guys like Baba Tunde and uh, Pablo Landrum, other guys that really had that understanding and knowledge from, uh, you know, and also the traditions and the names uh, from diaspora, that the, the original names that, that came over from the motherland that had been scrubbed down by, you know, whitewashed by uh, Euro centric Americans. I mean, like Santeria, that word is, that's a Latin word. That's not an African word. Uh, right. you know, and, and so, so much, I mean, I just wonder how close you feel you've gotten. Obviously you took lessons with Olatunji. Were you privy? Were there opportunity? Did you ever have opportunity in your life to experience, uh, a spiritual drum ceremony with cats that where their lineage went back to, uh, you know, some form of diaspora. Well, I've studied with, um, you know, people from the African ballet, the Guinea, you know, Bambaba Angora and Olatunji. I've never been part of a, a formal ceremony or anything. Or like just that. witnessing yeah. something like that. I, that, that. That stuff maybe was gone by the early 90s, I think. I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, the, 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 there's the whole African ballet thing, which is, you know, that's a performance art. Right. That was put together for them to compete and to, you know, uh, present their culture. But that's not the necessarily, I mean, of course, it's all really based in spirituality, but it's not really what you're talking about where, like, there's a deep ritual. That, that's what I'm talking about, the ritual, the, the idea yeah. of, like, you know, like... No, I've never, I've never <laughs> had the opportunity to, to do that. I've been with people that are, you know, able to do that but that are priests that are able to do that but i've never been in a ceremony or anything i've been around those people but i've never been in a in a situation where i i you know do you feel like that's something on your is that like maybe something on your bucket list i just feel like some after just talking to you for 66 minutes and you know literally coming from a white bread town in jersey and being infatuated with all this incredible these instruments that come from the motherland i i just I wonder if that's something that you would at least like to witness. It, to me, like it, it did have profound impact on guys like Cyril Neville, who, you know, in New Orleans, uh, he'd go to his parents. I forget what denomination, but they'd go to like some Roman Catholic church, and the <coughs> the pastor, the priest, was speaking in Latin. It didn't make any sense to him. And the minute he went to Reverend Lasty's church. Which was the last, one, the, like the last spiritual church in New Orleans. The guy had a trap kit on the stage, and like cats were falling out of the pews. I mean, it was really spiritual. It was all driven by the drum. I just wonder if that's something that, you know, maybe it's going to the motherland. Is there anything kind of like on your bucket list that you would like to? Not necessarily. Take yeah, I, I I did always want to go to Africa and study with them there, but I, you know, a lot of those trips. They are only 10 days, you right. know. No, not enough time, I, yeah. Yeah, to me, that's not enough time, you know, for me personally. I, I, I felt like if I was going to do that, I'd want to be there for months, you know, and like really 
totally really really get into it you know i mean just be marinated when he went to india you know he was able to do that right you know i mean that was always something that i was like really proud of him to do because you know he to do what he had to do with krishna das he he had to go through that you know it was i know i know that he felt he did you know i'm pretty sure because it just felt like this is what i need to do and if i was out and presenting and you know uh claiming that i'm going to play traditional african rhythms i wouldn't feel comfortable uh doing that unless i studied really deeply and preferably in africa but i don't i don't claim to do that with with what i do with my bands and my situations now you know of course not like no to, of course like not. to do that yeah. but I always felt that just being around those guys, it's such a spiritual experience for me. Like just being in a room with them, like one-on-one, or even if there's three or four people or whatever, and just listening to them play. I mean, it just, oh my God, man. You know, Olatunji used, um, I mean, Santana used to say, you know, sometimes when you look into the eyes of a certain percussionist, he goes, it's like you're looking into the eyes of Africa, you know? Totally. And I really, I really understand that, you know? Some of these people just have a, they just, they're operating on a different plane, you know? And they pick up the instrument and it's just like, what is going on here, man? This is like, this is like, what, what is this? You know, like, why does this make me, and I'll tell you, man, I'll be honest with you, I've been at drum circles where, you know, around a campfire outside where some people have just run away in terror because they've never experienced anything like that and they always wanted to do it and they come and they just, they can't take it. It's too much, you know, they just, it's like, oh my God, man, this is overwhelming. I can't be here. You know, the like the power of it, you know, being outside, being around a fire, all this intense drumming, especially when the drumming is good. Uh, dude, you know, that, I it, mean, dude, if you're, I, I would... I would tackle those people and make them stay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that I is know, you know, you, that you is catharsis, me. right? That's cathartic experience, right there. And I that, but see, and that this is how we'll wrap up set one <clears throat> because you just brought it up. And I'm not listen. I'm not going to make a you know. I have my my preferences as it relates to music, and you know, I try to keep an open mind. So I recognize that there are certain situations that I might be running away from as well, but. Can you just talk about um, if you agree with the idea that um, music today is made for, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but by and large, you listen back to uh, the Santana album with Alice Coltrane or, you know, Mahavishnu records with Don Elias and, you know, and, you know, guys that were putting percussion into rock and it was polyrhythmic and it was commercialized didn't necessarily feel like pacification today i feel like music by and large is really made to pacify people a lot of promoters a lot of people they don't want to scare people like you just talked about i mean again we're not always sitting around a campfire but to me music live music don't care what genre it is it's about burning it's about pushing it's about raising the collective consciousness. It's about being disturbed to a degree. It's about being introspective, walking away and sort of contemplating what you just witnessed and heard 
not being placated to or pacified. And I just feel like I remember talking to percussionists that played with Art Blakey and and they always said, they said, you know, <clears throat> even in the hardest times, in the Vietnam War, all these crazy times, the music always carried us through. And there was a burning element to commercial, um, just the music that was marketed uh, to the regular people. And I just today, I mean, by and large, uh, some of it has to do with electronic drumming. and But I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, if you feel like there's... Uh, some truth to the idea that, especially in the live, I mean, just putting recorded music aside, uh, like, is music now made for pacification as opposed to burning? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. And, um, uh, yeah. You know, because like, like, like there are cats that <coughs> I'll see you advertising come for some soft, soothing music and like there's there's congas but it's like we don't want to disturb the clientele or you know people are talking over the music or you know but it's not about that it's about spiritual focus and healing and it's like but yet that somehow is terrifying because you're going to upset the customer who and i don't i don't know how we got to this point but it's it's even if you look at jazz out, look at albums from the seventies, rock albums, multi, just tons of ethnic percussion. And then by the late seventies, early eighties, especially in jazz albums, like you said, a percussionist became an accessory. It was not a priority. It was not something that was put into the music. It just seems to me like that sort of Africa. This what we've been talking about that polyrhythmic spiritual drumming is very disconcerting to Eurocentric audiences. And I just, that, there's nothing worse than that for me. Like, I, I have to be in the front, having out-of-body descarga, and then pushing the, the musicians out of their comfort zone and out of their thinking mind so that they're going beyond what they know. It seems to make a lot of sense to me. But I just don't understand why the propensity is now to placate to keep it, you know, to pacify. Anyway, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I'm just in my own world. But that's just what I hear. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I feel you, man. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, not everybody can be at Woodstock, but it's just, you know, like that, that to right, me is... Like, yeah. We, know, we are, yeah. We are where we are today as a sociopolitical unit, and music is a direct reflection of that today. Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure that music means what it used to mean in this culture. That's exactly the significant... So that's the question for Chuck Wood. How has the significance of music changed in our culture? Yeah, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, it was everything, you know? But we didn't have all this extra stimulation that we have now. Everybody is so overstimulated... Oh my God. By the internet and everything. Myself else. included. Yeah, I'm with you 100. Yeah, yeah, the pace of life and everything. It's like, it's like it's it's almost like you have to carve out time for music. You have to carve out time for peace in your life. You know, and um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm hopeful that there is a shift happening now because um, at our shows, you know, like. 
we have people, the demographic is anywhere from like, I don't know, 16, 17, right up on 70 years old, you know? And we have all kinds of percussion and guitars being played in a very percussive matter, manner. So, you know, I mean, I see these glimpses of hope where younger people are like getting interested in live music and, and not so many machines. But then, you know, you have so many bands that are, that are electronic music. Um, or just one man bands, like, you know, just, just somebody, a DJ as opposed to a band. Uh, yeah, like the DJs are the rock stars of, of the way, the way rock stars were rock stars in the seventies. Now it's like DJs are like that. They got these elaborate stage setups and lighting and all this stuff. It's like, that blows my mind. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I think, I think there's a lot of things to look at there. Why that's like that. I, I'm not interested in that. So I can't really speak on that because I don't, I don't have any knowledge of what's going on there. I, I look at it and I say, that's just not, in my wheelhouse, I don't understand that. I mean, well, you know, it comes. Like, it's very simple to me. <laughs> it comes down to um, this I- idolizing of the of the one. Uh, when you look back at the great ensembles, um, everybody played a role. Yes, there was a band leader. Yes, they were f- somewhat famous. In some cases, successful. But there was an a- acknowledgement that. They, everybody was part of the conversation on the bandstand. And then it became this idea, not just in music, but this this one source, this one person, focus on this individual, make these people into pop stars. And what wound up happening was you had people that became band leaders that had never even been accompanists or sidemen. They went right to the top with no experience. And then you look at somebody like a DJ who's basically just, Breakbeating samples of music that was made by real human beings, and it, you know, to me, a lot of it also is just a bottom line thing. The idea of you know people saying, "Well, it's not worth me bringing in a quintet because then I have to pay four more guys. I can just bring in one cat; he can do it all, and I can save money." So a lot of bean counting as well. Uh, it's just to me, it's about like what we've been talking about, ultimately the true musical conversation amongst real people with pulse and heartbeat and fire. And that's as long, you know, I will not, I will keep my show going as long as I can, uh, you know, so I can hopefully see that, that turning point. I'm not sure if it'll ever happen because we have so much technology now. Um, and uh, I just know that with my daughters and stuff, it's a, it's a little disconcerting that you know i mean they listen to a lot of different kind of music but uh the minute that electronic beat comes in with that pop music it just feel it feels good to them and i don't get it because it i don't feel anything you know yeah you know it's interesting because there's a lot of uh discussion now about how old are your daughters 16 and 10 okay so they're right in that wheelhouse. Yeah, they are in the wheelhouse, but, but yeah. There, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion about um, people's brains uh, being, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but somewhat reprogrammed. Absolutely. And part of that is due to the pace of things yep. and also the timbre and, you know, like when you listen to music on your phone or on a computer, 
it sounds pretty bad to you and I. I mean, we 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 grew up listening to big woofers and tweeters and feeling the bass in our chest and everything. They don't they don't feel that. They, so no. they're listening to music. They're listening to music on a, in a totally different way. It's a totally different experience to them. So it's almost as if what you and I define music as, they don't define it the same. It's a different thing because it's being delivered to them in a different way the instrumentation is totally different the types of chords and the and the dissonance in the music is is different and it's like their their brains are programmed and what what lights their brains up and what lights up yours and my brain are two totally different things so i think there's a there's studies going on now about that because they're they're I don't know if you've ever seen these things on on YouTube they where they take kids around your daughter's age and they play them a classic rock song. Well, one the last one I saw was they played Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, mm. and they just say, okay, we're gonna play this song. They put the headphones on and they say, what do you think of this? And some of them totally dig on it. They love it. And then others, they, the, this one kid, he actually said, yeah, you know, uh, it's okay. But, you know, to be honest, I, I don't like acoustic instruments. I only like electronic instruments. Mm. So that's, there's, I think that there's some truth to these studies that are going on that are finding that people that are younger are stimulated by by different sounds. And it, it's, it's this electronic um, thing that... that are stimulating the younger people. Now that doesn't mean that if when they mature, you know, that when they hear, if they get an opportunity to hear acoustic instruments played correctly by people that know what they're doing, that that won't affect them. You know, I, 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 that's where my faith comes in that I don't know, man, there's something about like percussion instruments, specifically hand played percussion instruments that affect you and when we used to do those things that i was telling you about with my percussion ensemble back in the 90s we used to go and people would be walking through the park and they bring their like one or two year olds you know and we'd set up in a circle and the, they'd walk into the circle and they knew what to do man they hadn't been conditioned by society they knew to move you know they heard their mother's heartbeat for nine months it was an extension of that they they'd hear the drums and they'd feel the drums too and they just start bopping you know they just start dancing absolutely no abs you nailed it you, you, i mean I, at the end of the day I, for gen xer parents like myself um and some do this but a lot of them are just you know in some cases they don't necessarily have that passion for the music that i love or we love and and it's just really about exposure and and really pumping the beats, uh, <clears throat> the the good rhythms into. I mean, in the car. Uh, <clears throat> it's funny you bring up Mickey Hart. I mean, because uh, when we're driving around in the car, uh, primarily we're only listening to early '80s Grateful Dead, which is about as polyrhythmic and insane off the rails as you can possibly get, uh, and it is just. Once you play it enough, uh, they can feel it. As long so, it, the onus is on 
older peeps and parents to introduce their kids, if they have those inclination, introduce them to some of the hip shit. Because they'll get it. They can still get into it. Uh, And then they can make their own decision as they get older what they want to do. But the reprogramming, I mean, we know, I mean, we didn't even grow up with computers. Uh, We had uh, landlines. Uh, We were, I mean, I I think we had dial-up modems when I was at Boston University in the late 90s. But, I mean, if you've only grown up with a tablet or an an iPhone in your hand, uh, you know, and and those distractions and then also just sort of, you know, what you think is groove music, it's it's amazing. So I, I anyway, I I gotta hop out of here, man, but what uh, dude, I knew we were gonna have a ball. I didn't know it was gonna be this fun, dude. We went like ninety <laughs> minutes, dude. Yeah, well thanks, man. You know, I'm so you know, I hope I didn't go on too long. Dude, you were you know? right, dude, you you made sense all the way through, dude. Oh, thanks, man. I I'm really glad we got a chance to finally hook it up and talk you know it's been great man hey, and really, i appreciate uh, your support I just wanna, yeah go ahead yeah i just want to i just want to say you know what you're doing is really important work man you know documenting all these musicians that you know it's it's very important what you're doing and i just want to you know really give you a high marks for what you're doing and, and don't get discouraged man keep doing it because you know you're, you're archiving art you know and it's it's really really important because whether or not people like the music that you t- talk about and the people that you talk about, it's it's important to have it in the history books and 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 be there for as a resource for people that you know want to research these things and find out what it was like in you know 2022. And you know, man, I, I after so much <laughs> woodshedding and. I don't read a lot of books. I've most of my knowledge has come from the cats, like yourself, and uh, it's really, um, it's 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 just I I it's an endless well of inspiration. I I really rarely find myself ever discouraged. I just you specifically, what do you dig about the Jake Feinberg show? Well, I just just the fact of what we're doing, you know, just two human beings talking connection, dude. Talk- yeah. Conversation is a dying art, and it, dude. Absolutely, dude. <laughs> you know, so even even if you just whatever you talk about, you know, I mean, it, especially if you're talking about art, you know, the conversation itself is a work of art, you know, because <sighs> people people have. A, I think that you know, everybody's just would rather text. Somebody told me the other day that I don't know. I guess there's this thing going around with younger people. It's like they get upset if you call them that they that you have to text and say is it okay if i call you like i i, I mean what do you mean i, I don't dude it's not it's it's not yeah it's <laughs> you just you crystallized it we we have to continue the long form interviews because i think also uh inevitably not only is new history created but um it's also, I, I really also feel like there's a way, um, if you have content and it's in some of its quality, that um, there's really a way to, um, to make new media, social media, into a very viable thing. I, it gets a bad rap because, again, we're in this age of pacification, conformity, people receive information, and to me, you'll drown. It's, it's really more about finding your own voice 
and then using new media to connect people. Like that's to me, the idea of putting up stories about Michael Shreve coming from Chuck Wood is then going to lead to this. You can't, you, a lot of this stuff is unquantifiable and we live in such a data driven society now that people discard the unquantifiable. And we know that that's the really, that's the real stuff. That's really where life is at. And so I just like, I appreciate where you're coming from and, and I look forward to meeting you in person down the road. Hopefully you and Arjun can <coughs> get some gigs together and start cooking again and I can get there and we'll have a ball. Yeah, man. I have uh, I have my own thing too and I, you know, I mean, there's always the John Ginty band is always in the wings, you know. I mean, there's always... Dude, if, if please let me know. I seriously will fly back. To, I'm in Tucson now, but I will fly. If the Ginty band, you know, Ginty just moved to Florida, though. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and uh, he's down in Sarasota, but uh, that's all right, man. He's not, she's not shy. He'll jump on a plane. Dude, I love, dude, it's just, it's warming <laughs> my heart. Casal, Ginty, and yeah, Wood. I've known, I mean, I've known, I've known Ginty since he was 19 years old, man. These are the people, yeah, no, man. I, These are the cats, man. Fado, I, 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 man. I, thank you for making my day, bro. I'll get this interview up later. Awesome, man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, be cool. Yeah, you too. Later. Bye-bye. Bye bye.